From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, Rabbi Goldberg and a guest host are joined by baseball legend Daryl Strawberry. Daryl discusses overcoming the personal battles and challenges he's faced in his life, explains why he's so loyal to Israel and the Jewish people, and shares some memories from his playing days. Plus, looking ahead to Pesach. What kind of questions does the rabbi get this time of year? And what is Rabbi Goldberg speaking about on Shabbos Hagadol? All this and me, Behind the Bima. Good evening, Wednesday at 9 p.m. I am Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined by my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Josh... No, not Rabbi Joshua Brody. He's on break, celebrating a big simcha. Mazel tov to the Brody family on Avigal's engagement. The Zach, incredible, incredible news. Stepping in this week as a special guest host is none other than our fact checker, my brother-in-law, the great Binyamin, a.k.a. Ben Michelle. You'll understand <laughs> that later. Binyamin, thanks for yeah. joining and taking us... 9 p.m. Oh, taking oh, us. I'm supposed to say, okay, behind the... Should I say it as Brody, Rabbi Brody, or should I say it as my oh, intro voice? Okay. Behind the Bima. Behind the Bima. It's great to or be together. Or should I say it as Jeremy Schaap imitating Rabbi Brody? <laughs> Any of the above would work. But, Binyamin, it's actually, before we thank our sponsors and get into it, this is really interesting because the original idea for a podcast <laughs> years ago was that you and I, brothers-in-law, dear friends, share a lot of interests and have a lot of heated, great, passionate conversation and debate that we would start a show together. And that never came to fruition. A lot of life got in the way and Corona launched behind the Bima and ended up doing it with the rabbis as we were separated. So this is uh, sort of interesting that we're, we're back to the original idea, you and I together. Yeah, I don't remember it as it's, I don't remember it being the idea that it was supposed to be the two of us as equals, it was more, this is going to be your podcast with me kind of helping trigger some questions or get you to speak. Yeah, I, was like, being I would nice. just be the Floyd. Yeah, no, no, I, I want to be clear. That was not, <laughs> that I was, was never the idea. By the way, last time uh, I co-hosted was, I think, over the summer, and we spoke about the Oxford comma and two spaces after a period. You should know I got a lot of feedback. It's amazing, the reach of the show, and everybody agreed with me. Of course, the feedback everybody. you got. And I got all the feedback of the people who agreed with me. But let's take a moment to thank our generous sponsors. <laughs> Keeping it in the family this week happened to be my Machatanam, Jill and Bruce Minsky. Machatanam and dear friends, we happen to share a granddaughter. In memory of, they sponsored this episode in memory, Binyamin, of our grandparents-in-law. Let's see if people can follow this. Our in-laws' parents, Aaron and Esther Goldsmith, and Yisrael Nassan Achai Esther Brookstein, uh, really in tribute to our in-laws to honor their parents which is a very beautiful thing. We're grateful to the Minskis. We love the Minskis. We can't wait to celebrate Pesach with the Minskis. And we're uh, we're very excited to be together. Also, this episode is sponsored again by The Real Panama Tours, therealpanamatours.com. If you're going to Panama and you want to be able to see the country and taste the countless kosher restaurants and enjoy and see Panama, you got to check out therealpanamatours.com. Binyamin, our special guest host. What does is, what is being a guest host on this episode mean to you? It is not random or chance. No, this is not. the episode you are guest hosting. <laughs> That's not random. We happen to have a guest that you're very excited about. Why is that? Uh, I think it's above there. Yeah. Uh, well, as a child of the mid to late 1980s, born in 1982, and raised as a very early Mets fan, uh, there are pictures of me in Mets gear and videos of me. My four-year-old birthday party was a Mets theme party. And I turned four in 1986. And so the 1986 Mets in particular and the Mets that I grew up with Again, I was forced, I don't really remember 86, but certainly growing up, the, the biggest 
presence in my life outside my parents was, and maybe my grandparents, but maybe not, was uh, <laughs> Daryl's, no, no, God forbid. But listen, as a, as a kid who loved sports, especially loved baseball, especially loved the Mets, Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Doc Good, and these were childhood heroes. And the idea that uh, you invited me to participate in a conversation with, uh, with Daryl Strawberry. Uh, was pretty exciting until you trolled me brilliantly trolled me we could talk about that also because that was good now thankfully the picture i keep getting wrong the picture up there uh for those watching you can see he's wearing an old school early 80s mets jersey uh we can discuss what year but i think nobody else cares uh but the uh the original flyer for the episode was uh just i think daryl just in a sweater but there was a fake flyer. I don't know if you're trying to access it now, but there was a fake flyer that you had made up just to share with me. Like, here's our guest next week. It was Daryl Strawberry in a Yankees jersey. Yep. And you knew that I would take the bait and say, this yep. is ridiculous. <laughs> so you yep. had the flyer made up just to troll me. And that you was actually all worth it. full marks for that because I, I bought it. I bought it so easy. I shouldn't, in retrospect, it was, I was too easy. It was such, a, it it was, was such it was an obvious easy. bait. It was too easy, but it was fun. And uh, Daryl Strawberry, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll have him on momentarily and we'll speak to him. But he has turned his life around, not only yes. because he went from the Mets to the Yankees, but he turned his life around from uh, substance use and challenges to being a person who's got his life together more than just in baseball and is an inspiration in that sense, tackling some demons and also standing with the Jewish community and standing up for Israel. And that is... Um, Really worth listening to what he has to say and excited to be able to bring him on momentarily. Binyamin, Pesach is coming. What does that mean for you? Is that true? It's coming? I guess uh, today's Wednesday. Oh, wow. All right. So it's a week from tonight. Uh, yes. No, uh, it means a lot to me. I love Pesach. Um, Pesach has always been uh, for us a family uh, affair. So we go, uh, we're going to go up to New York to visit with my family, then Shani's family, our mutual family. So we sing a lot of family every month. And it's, it's something that struck me, I guess it's obvious, but only struck me after I got married, which is that it's the holiday that is really, for mo- a lot of people, the most personal one. Rosh Hashanah, okay, there's different tunes that a chazan uses, but ultimately Rosh Hashanah for most Ashkenazi Jews is the, by and large, the same. Okay, more yeshivish, less yeshivish, but by and large, it's the same. Okay, you might have different f- uh, fruits the second night or different foods the first. Okay, sukkahs, yes, you can make a sukkah differently. Ultimately, it's the same holiday. Pesach, the Seder, is such a personal thing. And the minhagim, the, the tunes, the minhagim, the jokes, it, it's such a, people get so embedded. I, I don't think I'm speaking just for myself here, that people get so embedded in it that the first year you go to a Seder that's not your own, right. it's like, whoa, what are these people doing? Right. Yeah, the tunes and how you do the makos and yeah. what are the fun things and what are the divrei Torah and what does it look like and the expectations of it all is very personalized and it embeds deep memories in people and it's really powerful and we have to keep insisting on it. You know, a theme I've written, spoken about in the past is how commercialized we've made even Judaism by, you know, you go and I'm, I'm not mocking or judging people who need to take advantage of the ease of being able to buy pre-wrapped 10 pieces of bread to put out or people who purchase salt water in the store, but the, I, I have vivid memories as a child of the assignments of preparing those things and putting them out. I, I have vivid memories of the chopping bowl and the chopping thing that was used to make the harosas growing up. You know, vivid memories people have about grinding maror, setting a table, taking out and, and growing up, you know, where I grew up in the New York area from the basement, we don't have basements in Florida, but schlepping up the Pesach boxes and bringing cleaning. down Muhammad's boxes, cleaning, you know, all of those things which people complain about, but they embed they embed the memory and the emotional connection with the Yantif, and they're what make it unique and distinct, you know? So people should persevere. Don't give in. 
there's a lot of ease and a lot of comfort that's out there. And I'm not saying we should make it intentionally more difficult for ourselves, but some of the things that take a little bit more of the effort, preparing the salt water and wrapping the 10 pieces of bread and putting them out or being thoughtful about how we'll mark the Eser Makos. Those are the things, the impressions, we're going to embed those memories. That's what's going to create the emotional connection. And that's what your children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, please God, are going to emulate that they saw and they grew up the effort that you're putting in. So don't give up on it. Yeah, uh, Rabbi Lord Sachs, that's all, has a beautiful essay uh, about the Russia, Ma'avada Azos And he talks about the work. What, what is this work? And he quotes a study about religion that, that uh, I, I, I don't know if it was a study or, or if he did this and talked to, I think he also talked to students himself, that found that for secular Jews of the three regal and Pesach, Shulisukas, Pesach was by far the one that was kept the most, which is counterintuitive because Pesach is also one that requires the most work. And mm. his point was religion is work and you only appreciate religion when you're putting more work into it so shavuos which is a two yontif without special and hugging without a lot of preparation necessarily needed other than preparing meals so it doesn't mean as much it doesn't resonate as much versus a holiday that actually takes preparation and look how many jews observe mm. pesach compared to how many jews observe shavuos and how many jews observe circus and you can see that it, he's obviously onto something absolutely and the thoughtfulness that we put in you know a theme i also try to emphasize and practice in our house is the kids come home with their Haggadahs. They're amazing. They're remarkable. Our teachers are absolutely incredible. But look at them on Erev Pesach and look through them at lunch on Pesach. Don't bring them to the Seder table. Seder table is not a time hard. to compete. It's very hard. It's a bold suggestion and it's rarely listened to, including in my own home. But you know, the, the Seder night is not a time to fight. Did everyone get their chance? Did everyone give equal amount of the Torah? Did you read everything that you had in your Haggadah? Did you say over every gematria and vartlach and every lumdus and every anything you're trying to impress? It's a time to keep it simple and to have conversations about what is freedom. Are we really free if you're addicted to your technology or you're addicted to keeping up with the fad and the style or you're addicted to your Starbucks coffee or you're addicted to binge watching Netflix? Are we really free? What is the definition of freedom? Physical freedom, emotional freedom, spiritual freedom. It's a time to talk about the connection between freedom and generosity. When we offer that disingenuous invitation, anyone who's hungry, come and eat, and the doors are locked and the windows are closed because we're we're trying to explain what freedom is, the ability to share, the willingness to share what we have with others, and freedom and dayenu and gratitude. And I'm not going to give a Shabbos like Eldrusha right now, but keep it simple and have these conversations. What does it mean to be a people and a nation? What is freedom from tyranny and oppression? But what was the freedom to? Now we have a land of Israel and a state of Israel. We're living in extraordinary and remarkable times, and we've seen it on fire the last few weeks. And we hope and pray it came to a head and we don't know the aftermath of what it means or what is yet to come. What is all that in the context of Pesach? We weren't just freed to be freed from tyranny. It was freedom to be a people in our homeland living a life. What does that look like? How do you navigate that? They just passed a law apparently in Israel. It's illegal to bring chametz into hospitals. Is that good or bad, right? If you're a member of the Torah observant community, maybe you're happy or proud about that. But is that what Israel should be? Should it have? Should it be legislating and, and forcing, coercing religion. These are great conversations so that the Seder night is not just a place of information, but it's a place of transformation. I think it's really, really important. And all that takes prep. If you don't put that thought in, you don't come to the table having thought these questions or what you're going to, how you're going to stimulate these conversations, they'll never happen. You'll just be passed out. You'll be trying to referee fights between kids of who got to speak the most or fights between adults about who was favored, which grandchildren got favored. It takes effort and it takes it takes uh, preparation in order to have a night of transformation. How, how do I mean? How do you balance that with trying to prepare a family and a house for Pesach? With I mean, maybe one or two things that you're being asked to do as a uh, 
Robert Vachul and a community that it may get a question or two. Is this the is this the busiest like week or two of the year for you? It's definitely up there. It's it's interesting. It it more than compares, more than the fall. Yeah, so the fall, right? The build up to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Seder Shemit Shuvah, Shabbos Shuvah. There's a lot that goes into that. Uh, very different than this. This is just it's it's overwhelming the influx of the Pesach questions that it was it was amazing. It was very slow last week, and I gave my pre Pesach workshop last Sunday, a week and a half ago trying to right. get it in early. And then it was like eerily quiet. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Sunday morning, I woke up and so did the rest of the world that were basically era Pesach. And you, you feel the rhythm and the tempo of Jewish life because your phone blows up. And as much as we have incredible resources now, the CRC app, the Star K app, the OU app, and, and many others, um, and, and really technology has made this much better and much easier for me and for others, uh, but there's still a huge influx of questions and selling chametz and trying to prepare at the same time and also not be absentee at home for the minimal contributions I make and trying to prepare there too. So balancing it all, but it's it's all, again it's part of the rhythm. I would I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't trade it in. I love it. You know, uh, growing up, I had Rabbi Ari Jacobson as the Rav of my Shul Muncie, and he used to announce leading up to Pesach, the later, the closer to Pesach. You ask me a Shiloh, the more mocker I'm going to be. And he wasn't, and it sounded like a joke because it is, it's funny, right. but he also meant it seriously. He's like, that if you want me to find a reason that it's going to, that it's going to be mutter, if it's a complicated question, I'm trying to find the reason that something that appears us should be mutter, that takes time. If you ask me that right. three weeks before Pesach, maybe I'll have time. If you ask me the day before Pesach, what else can I say except error on the No safe question side. about it. Right. Like the person who texted me, I don't, I'm not saying their name and there's nothing humiliating about this question, but only this year when they went through their spices that they have for Pesach, did they realize the spices they used last year were not in fact kosher for Pesach. They had noticed that a couple of the spices that they had purchased for whatever reason, assumed that they were. So now want to know, we have no idea which dishes we use them with, which pots and pans are all our Pesach things done. Are they finished? Do we need to cash them? Are they good? Which spices were they? What brand? What made them not kosher for Pesach? Were they chametz? So you, that's not a flip it. That's not like buy milk before Pesach. That's not like a uh, Costco, Costco water with minerals. Costco water with minerals, right? Flip flop on the Costco water with minerals questions. But yeah, definitely it takes time. I, I will tell you that it is a opportunity for rabbis to exercise patience and love of all Jews. So no matter how many times that you might list publicly that you're available to sell chametz, the people who will text you, hey, when can I stop by and sell chametz? Or hey, is there any time to sell chametz? Or right, or or no matter you gave a pre-Pesach workshop, you made it available online, you promoted it, the shul sent out a list of the halachas, you sent lists and links to apps that have everything. The people will say, hey, how do you cash the glass top stove again? So it is an opportunity from instead of being resentful or becoming bitter and murder, it is an opportunity to love all Jews and be flexible and realize you're that same nudnik in other ways to other people. And it's an opportunity to, to grow as people and to be patient. Pesach is for us all. What's the craziest question or weirdest question you've gotten? doesn't have to be this year, Pesach question. I remember also a monthly story, I'll buy you some time. Rabbi Rudinsky, when I was growing up, I heard him say one year, he said, uh, somebody asked me this year how to kasher a remote control. I said with a blowtorch. <laughs> so what's, yeah. the, what's, the, what's the craziest <laughs> question you've gotten? Um, that's a good question. A lot of them are repetitive standard questions. Right. You know, the price one, this noticing something, that's, that's, that's one that's off, that can be off. Um, right. That, that does come up also, and each one is a different answer, but people who used an ingredient could be a main or secondary ingredient at spice where they realized only afterwards and then its impact and the, and the domino effect of different utensils it would put in 
and did it undo everything that was done in that kitchen and so on and so forth. But for the most part, there are a lot of redundant, same, as much as we think our house is unique, we all have the nudnik husband who put something in the sink, even though we were in the 24 hours of not using it so we could kosher it on time and did that restart the clock or not restart the clock. And a lot of the same repetitive questions that come up over and over and over again. But By the way, we tip, are, tip, tip from your global campaign, <laughs> on the wonderful, amazing guests you had that night, which is if you get a question and you're still trying to think the answer, buy some time by saying, I love that you asked me that question. What a brilliant question. I love that question. And then you buy yourself another three, four seconds. Absolutely. It gives you a little bit of time. We've got our pre-Pesach market. If you're in Florida, South Florida, yes, we have a coming this coming Sunday and Monday. It's close to Pesach, but there was no other way to do it because we offer fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. We offer grape juice, matzah, chicken, fish. Uh, we're putting out a lot of canned ingredients and it's pay what you can afford, pay whatever you want so that everyone's invited. Nobody's embarrassed. There's a box, take what you want. And on your way out, pay, you could pay the actual value, you could pay what you can afford. We don't want Pesach to be prohibitively expensive for anyone. We have generous donors who are helping us make it happen. And anyone who wants to contribute to that, please do. We'll let you know how. And uh, But we're really, really proud of that and excited about that. And also, lastly, about Pesach, if you haven't yet listened to the latest episode of Out of the Shadows, we just released mm. the beginning of this week on OCD. OCD, holidays like Pesach can be triggering, and I don't use that word lightly, for people with OCD. And we should be sensitive not to use the word OCD just because we're from last year. Yeah. Yeah. Just because we're Pesach cleaning does not make us OCD. People with OCD really have OCD. And Out of the Shadows is great conversation with real people who are navigating. They share their experiences, their story, and their tips. Speak to an expert about it. And if you haven't listened, you can find it online. Out of the Shadows, you can find that in your podcast player. And we're really excited. But we are excited to bring on Daryl Strawberry Binyamin or Ben, as I will refer to you in front of him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's actually funny because I also remember the last time I posted, we spent some time discussing the evolution of Binny and Benyamin, and now you're about to, <laughs> when people are going to see this interview, backwards. you just call me Ben. We're going backwards. Which is my why don't you take us yeah. in? Take us into that interview by giving us a little bio and introduction to the great New York Yankee and Met, Daryl Strawberry. Anybody who grew up in New York in a certain period of time like we did does not need an introduction to Daryl Strawberry, but for those who don't know, he was... Uh, an outfielder, uh, a lefty with one of the purest swings you'll ever see, uh, a power hitter, and uh, I, I, just a tremendous player. Rookie of the year in 83, robbed of MVP in 1988. He should have been not Kirk Gibson. And, and the center, uh, set the centerpiece of the lineup that won the World Series for the Mets in 1986. Uh, they parted ways with him. He went to the Dodgers, the, a couple of coffee with the Giants, and then won some World Series with the Yankees. George Steinberg had a fascination with the 86 Mets. He loved grabbing former 86 Mets, good and strawberry, they played Sid Fernandez. He loved getting 86 Mets, but he won World Series with them. He was, a, I don't think, a key player on the team, but a contributing player on that team. And famously, as much as he is famous for his on-field accomplishments, real real struggles <laughs> with drugs, with alcohol, with, uh, with with off-field issues that really plagued him throughout his career. And he's, we just talked to him about that. He was very open about them. And we had some interesting conversations with him about what, what that was like and, and, and the challenges that he faced and how he would – uh, counsel young players that to, to avoid them nowadays. But uh, again, I th thankfully he's really cleaned up his life and is like you said earlier, an inspiration to a lot of people. And it was, it's, it, I would, like I said, I have to send my childhood self a memo about this conversation. Like, yeah, you just had a whole long conversation with Daryl Strawberry, like the Daryl. Do you remember how many home runs he hit in 86? Uh, I don't, I don't remember. How many. I think he, I don't think he ever hit 40. I think he hit in the mid thirties in 86, I think he hit 38, 39 in 88, the year he should have won MVP. And uh, his teammate, what was, was his batting average that year? I don't remember his batting average, but uh, he, he, like, he's, he is, it's, it's, it's sad because you're about to, like, you could dunk on me with all the Yankees, but he is 
one of the three or four greatest Mets of all time. But again, that goes to he was, and he was great. But yeah, in a sense, there was unfortunately his off-field issues kind of ruined what he could have been. And I think we, you were glimpses in the '80s of what what looked like it was going to be a Hall of Fame career start to finish that didn't materialize he provided yeah. a lot of great moments and great memories but uh i'm excited but, for you because this week is opening day which means the mets will be out of contention tomorrow at least, soon. At, least <laughs> at least you have at least you have this to hold on to so without any further ado you know hold on the mets won 100 games last year yeah <laughs> we're excited to welcome the great baseball player Dallas strawberry what a privilege how exciting it is to go behind the bima with the great mr Dallas strawberry great new york met also a great New York Yankee. Mr. Strawberry, thank you for agreeing to go behind the beam together. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. It's, it's, it's great to be with you, and I'm looking forward to having a great conversation. We have so much we want to talk to you about. Uh, we're two big baseball fans, actually two brothers-in-law, and we're rivals. We're both from the New York area. I'm a diehard, lifelong Yankee fan. He's a diehard, lifelong Met fan. Of course, we know the Mets really claim you. We can't really compete to the 1986 <laughs> World Series, World Championships. But the Yankees, you got three, 96, 98, and 99. So we could talk baseball. We want to talk about life. We want to talk about your support of the Jewish people, the Jewish community, and of Israel, all of which is really, really important. But maybe we could start with, with life. You know, you, you succeeded in baseball. You're a household name, certainly when I was growing up, and still that association with success in baseball. But you've had to overcome a lot of challenges in your life. And, you know, sports fans and others, we see the glory, we see the great moments, we see the breakthrough, the success. We often don't see the fight and the battle that has to happen in the background. Could you share a little bit about that? Where, where do you get the strength and the faith? How have you had the fortitude to fight those battles in your life to bring you where you are today? Well, Rabbi, that's a really good question. You know, when you think about it, I, I get the strength from my mother, uh, who was a very strong woman who was a very faithful woman and, and her faith watching her growing up, uh, I think just gave me the strength inside to be able to overcome things in life. Uh, I think coming from a home where it was a, it wasn't a perfect home, you know, and it, my God, everybody talks about the white picket fence. There's not a such thing as a white picket fence we live behind. So there's going to be some trials and tribulations in, in your life. And it's about how do you endure those things? And I learned that early because of the trials and tribulations in my home. You know, my father was uh, not a warm, welcome guy. He was not a gentleman at all. You know, he was more like an alcoholic. So he came home with a lot of issues all the time. And, and he kind of basically took it out on the family. And, and we suffered. We suffered a lot, you know, from those long nights. And I just remember... <clears throat> that last night when I was about 14 years old and he came home and he pulled out a shotgun. He said he wanted to kill the whole family. So wow. the, I think a lot of people don't ever see the scars and the wounds of a person. I think they just see the success and, and think, you know, you should be well because you play major league baseball. But I'm here to tell you guys today, major league baseball don't make you well. It just makes you a baseball player. It, it means you get to play at the highest level and, and you get to show your talent and you get to, to be able to achieve all these great things. And I always talk about the fact that it was my pain of who I was that led me to my greatness. And then How it was- that? Could you, Yeah, could you spell that out? How did you, at witnessing that and experiencing what you did from your father, a lot of people could have gone a lot of different direction. You channeled it into success, into breakthrough. How, how did you do that? Well, because when you think about it and you hear the words of your father, when he tells you, 
you're never going to amount to anything. And as a kid, it, either you believe that or you don't believe that. And I think I didn't believe that. And I think I wanted to prove him wrong that I would turn out to be somebody. And I think that's what my pain was really all about. Um, it led me to it, my pain. My pain kind of drove me into playing sports. And once I got into sports, I always told myself I was going to be the best because my father didn't believe in me. So I had to learn how to believe in myself. And, and that was very challenging. And But I think what happened was I had a lot of coaches in my life who came along in my life that played a role in my life as a father figure. And each coach kind of like part put something inside of me to make me believe in myself. You know, coaches are great. You know, you spend a lot of times with coaches than more than you do even at home with your family and everything. Because when you play sports, you have a coach for basketball, you have a coach for football, you have a coach for baseball. So I had all these different coaches uh, speaking into my life and encouraging me that I could. So I started hearing that part of it that I could, but still also at the same time, I was still, you know, I was still very affected, you know, inside of myself from, from what had happened to me. Uh, it doesn't take away, you know, putting on the uniform to play sports doesn't take away the brokenness and, and the pain. That's a real reality that I had to experience. And, and, and I kind of carried that with me for a very long time. And that's where my pain would lead me to go on to be great. But I always say the other part of me, uh, the destructive behavior is there too. That part does not go away until you get healed on the inside. So for a very long time, I wasn't healed on the inside. I mean, I was excelling at playing baseball and achieving all these great things and high five hitting home runs and winning trophies and rookie of the year and all these other things, all-star games, all these things were great. But after I used to take off the uniform, I used to question myself all the time and ask, who am I? You know, what's the purpose of my life? Is, just, is it just baseball? And for a long time, that's what it was, just baseball, because that's what I had to hold on to. That's what I had to be able to escape from the pain that I was in. So the baseball, the competitiveness, the success was sort of masking the pain, but it wasn't resolving the pain. The pain was still happening inside, which led to some of the behaviors and, and the substance. What What's different today? What's different about the Daryl Strawberry today who's able to express the pain or work through the pain or reconcile or live with the pain? So you don't need to turn to those behaviors or those other outlets, and you could have the success of life, maybe not only in baseball, but now of being a a model for others, a role model, a coach in other people's life. How do you do it differently today? I, I think it's just about growing, you know, and, and learning from the things that you go through. I think when you learn that life is a journey and that you're going to go through some highs and you're going to go through some lows. And if you can balance that and you not, not run from it and be able to face that, uh, you'll be able to overcome those things. But, but I think a lot of times what happens to people, if they sit on the victim mentality, they're going to be a victim. I'm not a victim. You know, I, I believe about being an overcomer, just like I played ball when I needed to overcome. And sometimes when you struggle in baseball, how do you get back on track? You get back on track by working on the fundamentals and you go back and you overcome that struggle. Uh, it's the same thing in life. I think you can use sports as I do use sports as the same as life. You know, there's going to be some hurdles that you have to get over. And if you don't quit and you don't give up, uh, you will be able to get over those hurdles. But if you if you give up, you'll never know that the miracle about your life and where it could be and the things that you're capable of doing uh, is far greater than the struggles that we have. I think life, I, I'm very grateful, as I sit here and talk to you guys, I'm very grateful for the struggles because the struggles 
made me a man. Baseball didn't make me a man. Baseball made me a baseball player. But the struggles in life uh, made me a man, made me realize what my mother was pouring inside of me when I was young, even though I was watching and I wasn't there where she was at in faith. But I learned through her faith that it was that that would take me and push me forward and lead me into my destiny that I am today. I mean, to be in a totally different place than I was many years ago after struggling for so long, not with the baseball, but struggling with life and life issues and struggling with addiction, which is real, uh, and going through that. I'm glad that I went through that. And, you know, even going through cancer twice and losing my left kidney in my second surgery. So, so many different things that I had to face, but being able to face those things head on and not running away and running towards those things to be able to deal with them brings me to the place that I am today. That's incredible. Ben. So from my standpoint, you know, the rabbi is a Yankees fan, so he, he could talk about the late nineties, but I, I grew up as a Mets fan in the late eighties. Uh, so what you meant to my childhood and, and the memories that you provided, I can't even begin to say, I'll just tell one story, which is my first day of kindergarten. I was at a new school and it's 1987. So you can imagine, Mets fan, I'm five years old in 1987. Daryl Strawberry, Doc and these guys are everything. And the first day of kindergarten, my mother introduced me to some kid in the class. And he says, hey, you're a baseball fan. You're a baseball fan. Why don't you be friends? He goes, Mets fan or Yankees fan? I said, Mets fan. He said, I'm a Yankees fan. Mets don't have a power hitter. Dave Winfield's a power hitter. I said, Daryl Strawberry's a power hitter. So I spent my first day of kindergarten defending your honor. So just that. <laughs> Oh my, that's a good, that's a really good story. You know, um, as the kid said, Met fans didn't, uh, he said they didn't have a power hitter back in this, those days. We had quite a few power hitters on the team. Yes, but you're definitely my favorite one. So, uh, but here's what I'm wondering, thinking back to your baseball life, because any Met fan, even Yankee fans can, can go through the highlights and go through the moments, the clock home run, the game seven home run, this one, that one. I'm wondering what's a moment from your career that maybe we didn't see or we don't still think about, but that you still think about, something that shaped you, something that you still remember as a meaningful moment that maybe didn't make the highlight reel or didn't make the box score, something that you still think about years later. Well, I think that was 1985, you know, when we had we were playing against the Cardinals in St. Louis and we had to go in there and sweep them to be able to win the, that division that year. Because you remember the Eastern Division yep. was a battle between us and the Cardinals. And, we go on to win that first game one to nothing. I hit a ball off of Ken Daly, a hanging breaker ball off the clock in St. Louis. Clock. Yeah, and they hated us so much in St. Louis. And I just thought that was a great big moment for me uh, against the Cardinals to be able to do that. And just remembering that year, I think a lot of people don't remember. I, I missed seven weeks because I had Dolan made a play and, and had a torn ligament in my thumb. I missed seven weeks. And to come back and finish up that season and still be in the race. And we won 98 ball games that year. I think a lot of people don't realize how good the 85 Mets were before the 86 Mets came to um, to the next year and winning the championship because we were really good in 85 and we just came very close to uh, just showing the Cardinals that we were going to be in it and, and just thinking about that moment and that after losing the next day, that series, and they go on to win. I just remember how our clubhouse was. Our clubhouse was very quiet and, and it was just a moment of us being able to reflect on the fact that we wasn't going to let this happen to us again. We were so good that year and we just came into spring training the next year and we just knew that it was our year to get it done. No matter what it was going to take, we just believed that we had the team to do it and we were going to fight through everything to get that. 
If, if who you are today could talk to who you were then as a player, what would you tell the younger version of you? What, what did you not know then that you know now that if you could go back in time or if you and you do talk to young players today, what's a message, right? You're, you're a eight-time All-Star, 335 home runs, 1,000 runs batted in. You're succeeding in every way. Maybe there was no one and nothing you'd listen to because why should you, right? <laughs> you're, 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 you're having success. But, but what did you not know then that you wish you did that, that if you could go back in time, you would tell a younger version of you? Well, I would tell a younger version of me to slow down, you know, slow your pace of, at life uh, because life is moving fast and it just seems like it's going to always continue to be that way and nothing's going to happen. And that's not the case. You know, I, I didn't know how to take it slow. I, I, everything was fast. You know, you're playing in New York, you're young, uh, you're talented, it, you're excited about the fact that you're on a winning team. And I wish I could have like paid more attention to like Gary Carter and Mookie Wilson, guys like that. They were living the right way. And what I mean by that, they wasn't out at night. They wasn't partying. They wasn't chasing girls. They wasn't in clubs. They were at home, you know, and they would drink milk, you know, they wasn't drinking all the alcohol and stuff like other players were doing. So um, realizing that those guys were living and they had faith and they lived a different way. I was impressed with that. I was really impressed with that. And I was, I wanted what they had, but I just didn't have the guts to do what they were doing. And I wish I would have been able to slow down and just slow and stay in the moment and the time of what it was instead of thinking so far ahead. Cause I think so many athletes, we think so far ahead. We think we're so great and nothing's never going to happen to me. And then you end up making the wrong choices and the wrong, wrong situations. And you can pick your sins all day, day long, but you can't pick your consequences. And I think a lot of times we don't think consequences are coming and they are, and, and it's a real reality when they do come and you're going to have to be able to face them and you're going to have to deal with them. So if I can look back and look at that younger Daryl Strawberry, I'll say, look, kid, you got a lot of talent, but you need to slow down. Uh, you were a 21 year old rookie now 40 years ago. I'm curious seeing, knowing that you're still around the game and still around the teams, the players, are teams, are the league, is the league, are they handling things better now? To put to to train those young players to guide them to 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 help them slow down. Are our teams doing have things more in place now than they did back in the eighties? Yeah, I think they do have more things in place now. I think they're more careful about you know the players and uh, the notoriety and what's out there. And I think the players are more careful about it too because you guys got to remember one thing is that we didn't have internet, we didn't have social media, we wasn't on outlets like this where we can see each other you know they have everything at their fingertips now where everybody can see them and everybody can pull out a camera and video you wherever you're at and i think guys are more careful about that and they're more aware of their surroundings and where they're going and what they're doing uh to protect themselves because all it takes is one video out there and 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 that goes and everybody's everybody's going to see it you know and I, I think you have to be aware of that for the younger players that are playing today um, because of the kind of success they're having and the kind of money they're making, you know, people are going to always try, try to come against them and, and, and try to point out their wrongdoing. And I, and I think that's um, something that the organization and I think some of that Major League Baseball makes aware to these young guys today that the challenges are different and they're real. Because if you get caught video and doing something, you know, it may cost you your career. You know, the Jewish tradition teaches there's nothing wrong with having, you know, weaknesses and challenges and struggles. There's a, a verse in the Bible that the righteous person falls down seven times and gets back up. 
uh, you know, the, the, the person who confronts their challenges and tries to, tries to maneuver through them, that's a hero. That's a strong person. Who's the Eze, who's Gibor, who's a mighty person, a person who's able to conquer their impulse, their indulgence. When I've had the privilege of being in the rooms in recovery, I've had the privilege with congregants in our community awarding them a medallion on a milestone of sobriety. And, and I've heard people in the room describe themselves as inferior or failure, broken. And I say, this is a room full of the most whole and complete people I've been in. You know, you, you go to the world where people are using cosmetic surgery or shopping at the mall or indulging in substances and trying to find happiness somewhere outside themselves. They're broken. And a room full of people who are honest and genuine and real and sharing and vulnerable, and they surrender to the higher power and those principles, that's the most religious, righteous room that I've been in. I, I draw such strength from the people in our community who are, I really think, heroically, courageously going through recovery. What, what's been your experience? What are, the, what are the lessons you've drawn from those rooms and the role model that you are for others today? Does faith play a big role? When, when you look back, do you credit the higher power God with your success in baseball and, and surrender to him today to be able to navigate life the way you do today. So different than you did when you were younger. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point there. And you said it all about, you know, the rooms that people are recovery and what we have to experience in life and we have to experience life on life terms. And we have to realize that, you know, I'm not a mistake. I'll just make a bunch of mistakes and, you know, life is, life is what it is, but I have to learn to suit up and show up and I have to become responsible. I think that's the word that we need to say that most of us do. You know, when we're out there and when we're in the midst of addiction and drinking, we don't be responsible. We we don't care about the responsibilities, but there's a lot of responsibilities that come in our lives that we need to take care of. And I, and I think it's important for all of us to understand that. And what we do is we fight. We learn to live on life terms. You know, we learn to live a different way. We don't learn, we don't look at other people and say, well, Look at them, you know, because for the grace of God, there go I. We all been there, so we understand that. So we understand the meaning of being strong and having strength inside, not only for ourselves, but for somebody else. Because I do know one thing that this part of it works. If we do recover, we which we do recover, and you can go on to help somebody else. Because at the end of the day, it's all really truly all about helping somebody else, you know, through your own valleys and, and through your own um, troubles or what you want, whatever you want to call them, to go back and say, you know, somebody else that's coming in that needs the help, you know, and it's always a need. And I, and I think when you understand that, you have uh, a great deal of respect, you know, for those people that understand that because they have been through a lot of things and they have seen a lot of things. Now you have gotten over on the other side. It doesn't make me any better than anybody else. I tell people all the time, it's, I'm not better than anybody else because of my faith and my face and what who I am and everything. I, I, I think it's just I made a better decision for myself. And, and I think everybody has that opportunity to be able to make a better decision for themselves because life is real. And, you know, and life is not all about where it's going to smell good all the way to the end. I can tell you that's not going to happen for none of us. We all going to have to face some type of adversities and stuff. And how do we deal with that? Do we cave into it? Or do we stand up to it? And I've been one of those particular persons that's always believed in stand, standing up because I know I wasn't a bad person. I just had a serious illness, I think, that most people didn't recognize. But I think we recognize today what the epidemic is in this country with so many young people that are losing their life and, and not here to have a conversation like we are, Rabbi. You know, we're here to have a conversation about real life and because 
because I'm overcoming and I didn't sit in the victim mentality. And I think about all those young people that are dying today because they don't have the opportunity to, to live, you know, and, and the message with the message of hope is real. I call it hope, faith, and love, you know, either way you want to call it. I call it faith, hope, and love. I'll put it in, you got to have faith and you bring hope to other people and you love other people in this do life. You, do you get recognized when you're in the rooms? Do people know who you are? And is that a distraction to the work that you're trying to do? Or does that position you to be even more helpful? Because if the great Dallas Strawberry could be here, then everybody can. Well, it, yeah, it was a lot of recognition, you know, and for a long time I stayed away from it, you know, and I went back into a different area of starting to help the younger generation because I saw the problems that were occurring in the country. And I saw so many young people. I had two treatment centers down in Florida and all I saw was young white suburban kids coming in and all addicted to opiates and heroin. So I, I just, I had tremendous compassion for that. I don't care about color because this is not about color. This is about people. This is about human beings, you know, and I think that's what we all have to get back to. You know, we have to understand, you know, we're all human beings and we all deserve to be well. You know, if I got well, I just don't want to keep it for myself and say, well, this belongs to me. It does not belong to me. I was extended the grace. God extended his grace to me that I don't deserve. I always tell people, what is grace? Grace is something you don't deserve and God gives it to you anyway. You know, and when you start, when you, when you understand that, then you understand how to go back and, and, and help others and, and make sure that they have the opportunity that you have. I mean, I'm, I'm not in bondage, you know, I'm free. I, you know, I, li I live a totally different life. I live a life of joy, peace, and happiness. So what do you do with your joy, peace, and happiness? You go back and you help somebody else. Amazing. Thanks. Did you, were, were you concerned about your son going into sports? Because obviously the, the sports world presents you unbelievable opportunities, but also serious challenges and temptations. And now, like you said, it's a different world. It's a more challenging world with internet and social media. Did you have some reservations about your son going into basketball? I did. You know, both of my boys played basketball and went to college D1. And, you know, I was I was happy about that. And, and I was in my daughters. They went to college and played volleyball. I was happy about that. But I was still always concerned about the fact that, you know, drinking is a part of young age, you know, and, and, and it's out there. And young people think, well, nothing's ever going to happen to them, just like I was. So I always made sure they un understood the fact that, this can't happen to you. It doesn't matter who you are, how strong you are. Um, it's real. And you can end up in the same place I ended up in the midst of addiction, alcoholism, and it will take control of your life. And I made sure that I explained that to my children because I wanted them to be aware of what I had been through in life. And, you know, they could easily go down that, that road. So my hope for them was that they never went down that road. And a lot of them never did. Have we had some struggles with our kids and with some type of addiction before? Yes, we have, you know, but we love them through that process and encourage them that, you know, we've been through it and you can get through it too. It's a, it's a hard, it's a hard road when you get on that road. It's not an easy road to get off. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't understand, especially when you're young, you know, it's, it's you think, well, you're just going to be strong and you're going to go on forever and nothing's going to really ever take place. But the reality is it, it will keep you stuck. It will keep you from moving forward. And I always tell my kids that you will not be able to move forward if you go down into this dark road of addiction. It's, it's not a it's not a happy place. It's not an easy place to get out of. So I try to encourage them just as well as I try to encourage others. 
We'll, we'll get back to baseball, but I want to move over to the relationship that you have with the Jewish community, with the Jewish people. Where did that begin? Is that something that goes back far? Did you have connection with with um, any Jewish kids when you were growing up in your neighborhood through baseball? Is it something which is more recent? You've been vocal and outspoken, and the Jewish people are are facing this big rise of anti-Semitism. A lot of people saying really hateful things and discriminating against the Jewish people, and we need friends, we need allies, we need to stand together. Historically, the black community, the Jewish community, always walked arm in arm, stood together, and, and we need to go back there, and we're so grateful. I want to express our public appreciation for your standing with the Jewish community. Where, where did that begin? Where does that come from? Well, that just comes from the history of all my friends. you got to remember, I played in New York most of my career. So all my friends, my, all my friends that are my friends today, all Jewish, and they all live in New York. And I've been friends for over 30, 35 years, almost 40 years now. And the relationships I have there are real. Uh, they are people who have been in my life through my good times and my hard times, and they have never turned their back on me. Uh, most people in our society today, if you have trouble, they look down at you. My Jewish friends never look down at me. That's why I am who I am with them. That's why I speak loudly about them. Because a lot of people speak on hatred because they don't know the Jewish people. They don't know the culture of the people. They've never been around them. They just go by what they read or somebody else has said. So I try to make a point of educating people about the Jewish people, because they don't know about Israel and they don't understand it's the Holy Land. They don't understand that they are the chosen people that will never go back. You know, I am evangelical, so we know that and we 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 understand that through our studies, our biblical studies about, you know, the land and the Jewish culture and know that, that God has made them the chosen people and they will be only the chosen people and then no other race will. And I think everybody think they should be, but they don't understand the principles. It's already been written. It's already been said and it is done. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, I had a chance to go to Israel in um, 2018, a place that I've always read about, you know, and always thought about and reading all about it and, and understanding and going there and seeing it for myself is just, a great thing people ask me well what is what was your favorite thing about being in israel i says well shabbat you know <laughs> everybody everything stops you know on on that friday you know and and i thought that was I, I was really impressed with that because of the fact that i said now what if in the united states can have a day like that too every day yes a shabbat and stop and reflect now we don't reflect enough here you know we're so busy and on time time for this time for that but you know to be able to be in israel and, and see that with my own eyes uh i was really impressed with that where the streets were empty and it was just a different feel and then you you go back later and then there's all the people again and i i, I was i was like i said i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed uh, the holy land and being there and being a part of that that's fantastic ben so I'm listening to it, and it's obviously you're you're uh, in a much healthier place and, and a much healthier person than you were when you're playing. But part of me wonders, do they go hand in hand? Meaning, could you have been as successful and as great a player as you were if you weren't feeling completely fearless, invincible, I'm on top of the world? If it's a weird question, but I'm wondering if you were in the place that you are now, emotionally, mentally, as you were when you were in your prime as a player, do you think you still would have had the same kind of career? I don't, I don't, I don't think I would be the same person that I am today. I think everything happens for a reason, and I think everybody has to go on their own journey in life. And 
for certain reasons. And I think I went in, went on my own journey like I did for those reasons and to be the man that I am today. I think that's, I don't think, I think if I'd have played baseball and had more success and got in the Hall of Fame, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. You know, I, I just truly believe that um, because baseball and, you know, status and, and stuff, you know, will keep you from your destiny. I, I just believe that in life. I, I know a lot of other players would think different. You know, they would think their goal is it, is it to achieve all this. I think I think God allowed me to achieve everything that I needed to achieve as a baseball player and to move into the next phase of my life and become who I have become. Because I don't think that part would have ever took place. I, I would have still been hanging on to uh, I'm in the Hall of Fame, you know, the trophies and everything, but I'm not. I'm not hanging on to the uniform. You know, I'm not around baseball as much as most are, you know, that, that have played. And, and, and I think a lot of players that have played before players that are playing today have, have, have a lot of envy and jealousy of the younger players and the success they have and the money they're making. I don't, I don't care at all about none of that stuff anymore because I know I was a part of that and I know that now I have a different life and I have a different mission. And, you know, when you have a different mission in life, you don't, you don't, you don't sit there and you don't dwell on the past and you say thankful you say thank you, and I'm thankful for what the past was, but I'm thankful what the past brought me and taught me, and I can learn about myself to become a better man. Is there no part of you that thinks that w w thinks about that a lot or spends time thinking, I wish things went the other way, I wish I ended up in the Hall of Fame, I wish I had all those trophies? Is, is there no part of you that just wakes up one day and says, I wish I had that other life? No, I mean, no, I, 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 I'm truly glad that's over. You know, I, I'm glad that part of me is over, and I was able to experience that, and I had fun. Let me tell you guys, I had a great time playing Major League Baseball. I was very successful at it. I did a lot of great things, and I take it, you know, and I take it and I put all of that and I use all that in my life today for the good, to help somebody else. It says no matter what you can achieve, you can achieve if you're broken or not, you can still achieve, but at the same time, I wanted to be well. It wasn't the baseball part that I wanted to be well. It was the person part that I wanted to be well. And I think every person feels that way about this life. You want to be well. You want to you want to excel at, at doing something great in this life to, to leave an impact, you know, an impact on, on going back, whatever it may be. So a, lot of, a lot of people might not have to go back and, and, and help somebody else. But I love helping people. And I think that's the, the greatest impact that I will ever have on my life and instead of hitting home runs. I hit grand slams. Yeah, I did all that. And that was great impact too, you know, for the fans and everything. And I'm glad that was a part of who I was. But this other part of my life is so meaningful. You know, it means so much to me. It means so much to me to to make a difference and help other people now. And that's what's important about my Jewish friends. You know, when I hear people talk about the culture and talk about the you know the Jews are like they're like they're nothing. And I was like, well. You know, you don't you don't understand. They they have been chosen, and for them to be chosen, you need to be able to appreciate who they are and go to their land and see for yourself. See, I think people don't go to the land of Israel and they don't see for themselves and they don't see the way the people are there. Those people are together. We're not together over here. We're against each other. We're pulling one way and the other way against each other, and you see them live among each other. And they're together, and we need to learn something about that, and we need to learn how to do that as, as a people here in the United States.
the stereotypes are terrible in any direction. Stereotypes that any race or culture or community have about others. And and 100%, everybody should listen to your words and go learn and go befriend and go. When you create real relationships and you know real people, you don't buy into silly stereotypes because you've seen it on a sitcom or read it in a book or a magazine and, and you've done just that and you're an example. Talk to us if you can. I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm athletic, but I grew up playing sports. I still play sports. I enjoy. So when you see in the NBA, a guy hits a three-pointer, you say, you know, I've hit a three-pointer in my life. And in tennis, you could hit a great shot. And in golf, maybe you really connect with the drive or you chip a ball in. So maybe I could connect. I go to the batting cages every now and then, and I can't even touch. I can't put my bat on a ball going 60 miles an hour. I'm low. That 60-mile-an-hour ball goes right by me. I have no shot. How does a person come back from a night of drinking or a night of partying, a night out, and then face a pitcher who could throw 100 miles an hour, could throw a 75-mile-an-hour curveball, a changeup, or 100-mile-an-hour? And what always amazes me about baseball and hitters like you is not only the hand-eye coordination and the skill to hit the fastball, but the thinking to sit there and play this chess game, right, to, to, to guess what is he going to throw next, what's likely coming, and how am I going to adjust? How much – going through a successful hitter, someone like you, how much of it is the athleticism, the hand-eye coordination, and how much of it is the baseball intelligence to be able to guess and figure out what's coming next, be ready for it, and adjust for it? Well, I think the most important thing is 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 the eyes being able to see, and I think that's the most important thing. Everybody says eye, hand. You can have great hands, but if your eyes don't see the ball, then you're not going to hit it. And that was the biggest focus I always had. And I think the most uh, important part of the game for yourself is knowing who you are. You know, I know who I am as a player. I didn't go up there with to think about things. I went up there knowing that I'm going to hit the baseball. And if you don't know that, then you're not going to hit it because the baseball is the most difficult thing to be able to hit. And you, like you said, you're going into the cage and you, you're thinking, you're thinking, can I hit it? You have to know that you can hit it. That's the that's the key right there is, is being able to know it, keeping your eyes on it, your hands are your hands are followed. That that that'll take place. But if you know that in your heart that you can't hit it, then you will hit it. But if you don't know that in your heart, you ain't gonna, you you will never hit it. You'll be like, I wish I can hit it. But you know, as a player, I always knew that before I even got in the box. You know, I always I can win the ball game in the on deck circle because I watch the ball game and I wait. And uh, wait till I get in the box for my time. And once I, once I got in that box, all I knew for myself was I knew how to win this ball game because I knew one thing: I'm gonna get two good pitches. If I follow one of them off, the next one I'm gonna hit. So that that was my thought process. I wasn't thinking any other way. I wasn't thinking how great the pitcher was. Yeah, I had some battles with different guys, and the toughest pitcher I had to face, who I feared the most, was Nolan Ryan when I first came in the league. But eventually I got over that, you know, and I knew I had some battles with him that I, I won some battles because I knew I could, you know, and he won some battles because he knew he could. And that's just the way players think, you know, great players. I think what we, we don't think about what the other person is thinking. I think about what I'm doing, you know, and I think that's what made me the kind of player to play at the highest level because I knew if I got in the box in the situation, and I needed to hit a home run. I didn't try to hit a home run, but I needed to hit one. All I knew for that fact was I just need to hit the ball hard and everything else would take care of itself. 
And that's what I used to do. I used to hit the ball hard to make everything take care of itself. Yeah, I, th I think Daryl's setting me up for this because he wants me to mention that in the 86 National League Championship Series against Houston, he had a game-tying homer against Nolan Ryan in Game 5. Yes, I did. I, I mean, like I said, I had some battles against Nolan Ryan, and he got me uh, on many times. I'm, surpri I'm surprised you didn't say a lefty because I, I was I was still young, so I, I don't remember. I, I wasn't versed in lefty versus lefty, lefty versus righty. But I've heard the story of my father watching your at bat against Ken Daly in '85, saying, "Lefties, this guy, lefties, going to be a big problem for this guy. Lefties," and then suddenly the ball's hitting off the clock. <laughs> well, lefties didn't. Lefties wasn't really my problems, you know. Once I learned that and mastered how to hit them, you know, I think I started studying them and. Hernandez was teaching me things about left-hand pitching, and I started realizing them and baiting them into, like, challenging me inside. And once they made the mistake, they could forget about it. I remember one year I hit 15 home runs against lefties, and I, I, hit, some, I, I hit most of them in the opposite field, you know, a, a lot of times because I started to learn to hit the ball the other way and use the whole field. So I, I, I never had a fear for lefties. I mean, I think early I did have tr trouble with them, but I had to make adjustments. Everybody has to make adjustments. And it's just like in life, too. You have to make adjustments in life. You have to make adjustments in, in playing sports. If you don't make those adjustments, you're not going to get to the next level. And I think, like, like I said before, great players always get to the next level because they know what they can do and what they need to do. Are, are the young players that you're around more interested in asking your advice about baseball or asking about your life experiences and how you dealt with some challenges? I, you know, the young players don't really talk about that. I mean, I hung out of spring training with them. And, and, you know, of course, they asked a few questions about how how was it getting to the next level? How did you guys get to the next level of winning? I said, well, we lost in 85 against the Cardinals. We won 98 ball games and we lost the division. We came back that next year and we just realized in spring training that nobody was going to beat us anymore. And nobody was going to beat up on us. We was going to take advantage of every every team <laughs> talent we have you have to know the talent that you have in your clubhouse and you have to have a chemistry to play to win it doesn't matter because you have a good team on paper but if you don't have the chemistry and you don't believe in the talent together on your team you're not going to win you can win a lot of games but you're not going to win those big games because big games come when when the playoffs come from knowing during the regular season how good we were how many adversities we had to go through, how many challenges we went through when we were down. We always knew we could come back. That, that's what 86 was all about. You know, we, we we were down in games during the regular season. We always came back and won. We got down in the playoffs. We realized that we can come back and win. We got down in the series, World Series. We realized that we can come back and win. If you can't realize that you can come back and win and you can't beat their best pitchers, because in the playoffs, we realized, I realized one thing, and I think a lot of young players don't understand you can have a great season all you want, but when you get into the playoffs, you're going to face the number one, number two, and maybe the number three starter. You're not going to be facing four and five. You're not going to be facing slop coming out of the bullpen. You're going to face the best, and you're going to have to learn how to beat the best. You you played with the Dodgers and Giants, but you won with the Yankees and the Mets. There's no bigger platform in sports than playing in New York. How would you compare playing with the Mets and with the Yankees? How would you compare winning with the Mets and the Yankees the atmosphere different, the celebration different. You know, there's notorious Met fans hate Yankee fans. 
and and Yankee fans, we don't we don't even think the Met fans are even worth hating. That's how little we think. So having played for both, did you feel at any point that you were like a traitor, that you were changing teams or sides? How could you put on the other uniform? How, how would you compare playing for both and winning for both? Well, I would compare winning in New York City is everything. Uh, you know, the fans are, are diehard fans and they have such great knowledge about the game. So that that's the most important thing when you play in New York. And I think a lot of players come there and play and it goes, well, I can't play here because it's too much pressure because they boo. You know, booing is part of it. You know, they, they, they the, I love the fact that they let you know when you suck. That's just the way it is. And sometimes you need that to, to keep pushing you forward. So when you play and, and, and two different organizations, you want to mess, the Mets are, are a new organization now because of new ownership. Uh, they will be different moving forward. They will be sort of like what the Yankees were when George was there and he was the boss because he wanted to win. And I think Steve wants to win and uh, his wife, they want to win. They want to bring excitement to Queens. So I think you'll see a lot of that of uh, pushing, pushing the button uh, to win. Um, the Yankees are, are, are just an enterprise. You know, they're an enterprise with the history, uh, tradition, players, and, and, and they have it. They, they, they've done it. You know, they did it right. George did it right. His years of uh, owning the team, um, he made sure that every professional team would know that the New York Yankees are winners. So when you build that and you have that legacy like that and you have such great players that they've had in history, um, they stand above everybody else. They, they always will until people play catch up with them. And it'd be a long time to play catch up with them. But I, I, I think the New York Mets are headed uh, for something new, you know, something new. And it's exciting. It's exciting because uh, I played eight years there. It's exciting. The fans were exciting because you got to remember in the 80s, the Yankees didn't own the town. The Mets owned, owned the town in the 80s. We ran the papers. We ran the headlines. And the you know, Yankees had some good teams over there, but they were never talked about because it was always about the Mets on that side. So now it's, now it's all it's been all about the Yankees and the Mets have been, you know, the team over there in Queens. But, you know, they look like they're starting to knock the door uh, down a little bit and you know they're making some noise to push through the door and hopefully they will continue to do that uh, hopefully it'll just go that way for each team in new york because i love i love new york city i love the yankee fans i love the Mets fans they they're awesome fans you know they they want to win and where else would you want to play i mean you want to go to a ballpark where they don't care if you don't win you know i don't want to play i don't want to play in places like that so i was blessed to be able to play in the bronx and in queens did you hesitate to put on that Yankee uniform? Was was it hard to not put at, on? Not at all. I mean, I mean, because when you look at George and who he was and what he cared about, George cared about people more than most people can ever imagine. The rest of the, the rest of the media wanted to talk about people, but George cared about people. He had a heart for people, and that's what a, a good owner is. And I think Steve is the same way. The new owner for uh, for the uh, for the match. I think he has the same kind of makeup that George had when he was the owner of the Yankees. He, he, he likes people. He wants people. He cares about people. He cares about the history of the Mets. He's bringing the Mets' former players back into the whole thing, you know, of the organization to be front and center, which, <coughs> excuse me, which didn't happen for a very long time because a lot of players wouldn't come back. By the way, Rabbi, I know you are a sensitive person and are moved by stories of sensitivity. I remember watching and hating those late 90s Yankee teams, especially if they were winning with some of my my former Mets, but I remember one of the playoff series they won, 
or maybe more than one, they, the Yankee, those Yankees teams celebrated in the locker room with non-alcoholic champagne out of respect for Daryl and knowing that he was going through recovery and didn't want to trigger him or do anything. And, and that was like, I don't like giving the Yankees credit, but they get a lot of credit for that. Yeah, that was a class act by the whole organization, and, and I really appreciated that. So as this is opening week, maybe we'll end with this question. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been a lot of fun and a lot of learning, really a lot of insight and inspiration. As we're in opening week, Major League Baseball, does uh, Mr. Dow Strawber have any predictions? Uh, not between the Yankees and the Mets, who will finish uh, higher and better. Overall, what are we going to see this season? I think you'll see a lot of good baseball. Uh, I think you'll, start, you'll still see some of the uh, lower teams not there yet because they can't compete You know, with the uh, – upper teams who go out and spend the money on players to get players to come in and play for them. And, and I think it's going to be a good year. I think it's going to be a good year for the, the New York teams. I think LA and San Diego, those teams out West are going to be in it. They don't have a lot to say about it. Um, and some of the other teams, I think they're going to probably surprise a lot of teams, you know, you, you, you probably thinking uh, teams that you don't think about, you know, I don't know. I don't know where the angels are. I know, I know they have, struggle of, of, of playing and winning you know but you know texas looked like they've improved them themselves with some players over there and you never know what they they're going to turn out to be like in the west out there so you know you, it, it, it should be a fun year for baseball it's a long year um and i, I think everybody needs to you know just kind of hold their breath and realize that you know it's not going to happen overnight we're going to go through some valleys and we're going to go through some you know some situations where we uh, don't play well, but we just got to keep fighting through it. And so it should be a fun year of baseball. Mr. Dow Strawberry, thank you for your time. Thank you for standing with the Jewish people and standing up and fighting for Israel. And thank you for sharing the inspiration of your life today with so many others. For all of us who know your name from our childhood, for hitting those home runs, to now know your name for hitting the home run of life, which is helping others, it's, it's a greater success. You're a world champion. You're a life champion. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you guys for having me. And go Israel, my favorite place. Thank you. That was a fantastic conversation. And yeah. uh, so grateful we had the opportunity to have it. What's your takeaway, Benjamin? What, ben, what jumped out at you? <laughs> Besides you calling me Ben, what, what jumped out? I mean, it's, 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 I, I was thinking about the, one of those questions I asked him towards the end. Would he trade it all? Like, I, I wonder if you tell him you could have that full career where you're the Hall of Famer and one of these legends with all these trophies, but it comes at that cost. He was pretty clear. And I, I believe when he said it, when he says he doesn't live with regrets. And I think to my own takeaway is everybody goes through life with a certain amount of, uh, I guess, hindsight, looking back, I wish I did this differently. I wish I did that differently. And to be able to be so comfortable in your own skin and saying like, yeah, okay, I made mistakes. Yeah. I did things that, uh, that had I done them differently, maybe my life would have been better or different, but to not, focus on that and to just move on and say, okay, but that got me here. And for whatever reason, right. uh, these things are part of my past. I don't ignore them, but also don't let that get me down to me. That, that spoke to me a lot, even though I was never a superstar baseball player, but that, that message, that takeaway of you can't focus on that and just look forward and, and be grateful that whatever obstacles you had in the past, even if you think they were bad for you and they, maybe they were, but they also are part of who you are today because of that yeah, and because absolutely. of your ability to overcome them. I was proud when he described his Jewish friends as having stuck with him through thick and thin. Mm -hmm. and, and part of his loyalty to the Jewish people today is because of how much he felt that his Jewish friends really stuck with him, which which should be very 
informative to all of us that, you know, in, in this fight against anti-Semitism, so much of it's personal. When people have positive experiences with Jews, they feel very connected. They don't believe in stereotypes. And they say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not my experience. And God forbid when they have the opposite, they also then buy into and promote and share those stereotypes. And he's such a friend of the Jew now and an advocate of the Jewish people and of Israel because he says, my Jewish friends were good to me, stuck with me, were loyal, stood by my side. And I was, I was proud of that. I also was moved when he talked about when he was succeeding in baseball, he said, I was a good baseball player, but I wasn't a whole person. I was yeah. empty inside. And that's why he was filling it with these other things. So again, sometimes we look and we say, oh, that person has fame. They have fortune. They have success. They have notoriety. They have it all. I'm so jealous. Those people might have all those other things, but at their core, inside, they're empty. There's a hole in their heart that they haven't really dealt with that pain. And they're trying to suppress it or deny it or numb it. That's actually the theme of our Shabbos Hagadol Drasha this coming week. And I, and I yeah. loved how he I loved how he admitted that. And he says, you know, now at this stage of his life, he's actually addressing that pain of his childhood, and he's filling that vacuum and that void with meaning, not thinking he could run away from it or fill it with drugs, alcohol, or partying. You know, that's like a cliche. It's a cliche because there's truth to it. But that it's like a thing on Twitter and places like. The classic Masif the Rebbe Rabboi side. Do you think LeBron James is really happy? Right. You think Daryl Strawberry is really happy? You think Elon Musk is really happy? But like that's, right. it's it's a classic. But there's truth to that because like you, how many people are like Daryl Strawberry that tell these stories about their playing right. days and about when everybody assumed they were on top of the world, but they uh, there was a, a whole other part of it going on. Yeah. So Shabbos Adonai. That's that's this week too, right? That is this week. That's coming up very soon, which is why we're going to wrap it up soon. Yeah. So actually, I'm, I'm actually curious about this. Um, Walk us through what it's like preparing a Shabbos Agol, I've been here now, God, thank God, 10 years. And I think I've seen a little bit of an evolution where I, I think I could be totally wrong on this, but I think like over the last few years, five, six, maybe seven years, it's been more of like almost ex existential type of questions and issues and real like deep seated hashkafic issues. I remember first year, uh, the first year I was here, Shabbos, ha, Shabbos Shubi spoke about Shabbos. It was amazing Shabbos Shubi Joshua. And Shabbos is a critical topic. And you still talk about Shabbos turning Friday to every Shabbos. But I feel like over time, it's gotten each year, twice a year, Shabbos, Shubha, Shabbos, Godot, there are these like really complicated, complex issues, which yeah. I, I look forward to so much hearing them because they're life-changing each time. So walk us through like what it's like preparing sure. something like that. Do you think the topic sure. first, the sources first, what, how, how, do, how do you get there? Because I'm sure, sure I'm not the only one who's wondering. I'll briefly walk you through that. Um, <laughs> That, that evolution is real, and it, it comes from several places. One is, I have the great privilege and pleasure and blessing and challenge of speaking to an enormously diverse audience. So sitting there at Shabbat Shiva or Shabbat Shagad Ladrasha are people who can learn me under the table, huge Tamidei Chachamim, who, who I, I am a no one and nothing compared to, and novices who may have driven. Um, in fact, on Shabbat Shiva, I will tell you that afterwards, two people who are not observant, who I know live in Palm Beach, I've worked with professionally, came over to say thank you. And I was like, what? You were here? I didn't know that. And they said, yeah, during Corona, we discovered and listened online. And when we saw you weren't wow. doing it online, we came. And we could talk about the halachic basis of that or not. Would you, I, I, would you, would you say Shevet Achim Gamiachad? Yeah. So, so there's an right. enormous diversity. You know, Baruch Hashem, we, get a, we have a large segment of the community who come. It's a real communal learning opportunity. But how do you pick a topic that can resonate and land for everyone? So the classic Shabbos, like the Shabbos Shiva Drasha, which is lumdus and Halacha. And at the end, you know, you stop in a little Musr, a little message that, that wouldn't work. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure it works for me, right? These are two major communal sort of state of the union gathering meta issue. What do we want to tackle? What do we want to think about? How do we want to change? And of course, incorporate 
almost all Torah sources and lambdas and halacha, but contributing towards a bigger theme, developing a bigger idea. The hardest part is coming up with a topic. And the topic is just what resonates, what I'm thinking about, what I'm working on. So it's, it's you know, for me, it's extreme ownership and responsibility, or it's uh, Seder and organization, or it's, in this case, pain, living with pain, maror. I really, I, I wasn't sure where to go and what to speak about. Um, definitely, I'm not addressing why bad things happen to good people. I don't feel adequate now or ever, and it's not the time to talk about and deal with it. But certainly that's not the topic. But the notion of maror, and everybody asks us, why is there maror? It's a night of celebration. Okay, and if maror is only in the history, it's out of order. Why Pesach, Matzah, maror? It should be maror, Pesach, Matzah, maror, Matzah, Pesach. Maror is clearly out of order. So what's the role of maror? And I'm going to develop the idea, and, and just a little spoiler alert, but I'd like to, and, and we're going to trace the halacha, horseradish, lettuce, which one's preferable, what measure, where these customs come from, how do they evolve and develop. We'll, we'll, we'll get through halacha, we'll get through what, a little what do you do if you find more delicious? <laughs> what do you do if you find more delicious? We've got some lumdas. So, so again, so, so, you start with, so you start with an idea. I, I know I want to speak about pain and maror. Yeah. So it, then, it's an interesting thing about Torah and it's an interesting thing about life. Your insights come from your real life experience and where you are and what you're thinking about right then. So I was thinking maror, more at the table, and I and you know kept Pesach a few years, so I have a lot of ideas about Mara I've heard from others, and we'll mention them. But where I want to come to, I'd never thought about before this year, which is you look around at so many mental health challenges, you look around at so much addiction, right? Relevant to tonight's guest as well. And in the in the in the addiction world, they'll tell you that people who are suppressing pain, people who are numbing themselves to pain, people who are trying to escape and avoid pain, end up turning to addiction and often end up living and creating mental health challenges. And there is a merit to the ability to lean in and experience and embrace pain. And that's where I'm going to come, is the role of Maror is the tyranny of comfort. When everything has to be comfortable, that's tyranny. And when you say, I'm, I'm free to experience pain, the freedom that life isn't perfect and things are painful, and I'm free to not escape or avoid or suppress or numb myself, but I'm experiencing pain right now. And that's a huge part of our tradition too. Right? There's uh, Avelis to a certain extent is, is that tradition. It doesn't say, well, everything's from Hashem and it's good and just accept it. No, sit and cry and grieve and mourn and comfort because lean into that pain. And that's, I think, a role of Mara. And we'll talk about, therefore, the role of pain and how do we navigate pain and how do we not become consumed by that pain? It can't inform everything about our lives because if we're, if we're overwhelmed by pain, then you can't function. So I, I mean, I'm not there yet. So it's only you know Wednesday night, but we'll, we'll get there hopefully in time. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming since you've been a pulmonary rabbi over 20 years, you've talked about the people who suffer that rare condition where they can't even experience physical pain and how right. dangerous that is, even yep. though it sounds amazing. Wow, no pain, but how right. the, the health benefits and the health necessity of pain. Yeah, absolutely. There's a neuropathy where you can't feel pain and things are dangerous. You could be bleeding internally. You could have a huge cut injury to your hand leg. On, hand on a stove. Yeah, you don't even know it. So pain is an indicator that something's wrong and it's a healthy response. It's not a welcome or wanted response, but it's a it's a healthy response. Absolutely. Looking forward to looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. And I, I'm really down to only preparing source books for these major talks. When I was a young rabbi, it was all about <laughs> cutting and pasting. Back when I was a young rabbi, it was literally cutting and pasting. Um, today nice. with technology, it's much easier to prepare that. Um, but I'm down. And the reason I do it is not to blow anyone away your press or everyone. I know I, it's funny that the public perception of me versus you know me very well, I think, offline, who I really am. People <laughs> think I post these source sheets because I'm competing or trying to 
I don't even know why they think I do. It comes from ego. It really comes from the source sheets are not just Hebrew classic sources. I try to sprinkle in articles. You often help me find them, but articles and insights and surveys and research and, and try to somewhat cover a topic in a way that, so we put it out before Pesach, we leave it out over Pesach and we leave it out after Pesach. Read through it. Think about it. Have conversations about it. These are meta issues that hopefully can can really impact in a bigger way, and that's why the work goes in for the booklets for this. Not so much for the shear itself. I would I wouldn't care if you don't nobody looks at the booklet during the shear, but it's for before and after to continue the research and the conversation going. Yeah, in a shame. In a way, it's a shame that uh, these aren't online anymore and accessible to the broader world. But there's nothing like being in that room in that moment and being part of that uh, that audience that gets to experience it in person. It's a it's a special it's a special moment. It's a special drasha. So I'm I'm excited for it. That was a big decision, and that was a big decision that we made. I think we talked about it on behind the beam when we I, I made was, it. I was, I was very, very much on one side here because it's, it's, it, it's how, it's how was, how was Oh, I haven't looked back. I haven't looked back yeah. at IOTA. It, it also is a reminder: your core community is your local community, yeah, the top priority. Sure. And there's this, in, you know, j- just like if you're a public family involved in public life, but you have certain experiences that are private. So as much as we have a global community, and we're grateful to the global community recently, have been so generous. But this is part of that connection that we share together offline as well. So Binyamin, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest host tonight. Thank you for all that you do on a regular basis. Oh, are we not talking about gutters? We gotta talk about gutters. What have gutter are you using? Nah, we'll leave that for next year, which I got is really <laughs> gotta leave that I, I, out I, there. I just I just want to do the most basic flex because everybody's getting this this year. <laughs> uh, I started looking at it fantastic. There are Melech on the Haggadah. Uh, I know <laughs> you have already shared a piece about uh, the husband's obligations uh, yes. for Melech. a great story. Yeah. Uh, I'll t- let, let you tell it another time. But uh, excited I, I it's amazing how that one text has so has just endless endless you get there's endless. how many it's like 50 more commentary. Every year. i think there's more commentary than any other text it's really amazing it's really amazing. really amazing thank you for joining tonight again big thank you to the minsky's always, for sponsoring in memory of our grandparents-in-law the neshama shalom aliyah the real panama tours the real panama tours.com check them out if you plan on going to panama want to wish everyone because next wednesday night we will be having nights of transformation, not just information. We'll be sitting around the Seder table. So you will be the host of your own behind the Seder table. So until after Pesach, wishing everyone a chakashim v'sameach. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay home. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.